Today's scripture reading will be from Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. And please stand with me for a reading of God's word. Starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see the great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will rise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, of which he speaks in the name of other gods, the prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word of the Lord, sorry, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the things he does not, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. Good morning once again. Uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Beginning in verse 31, we've been going through the, the gospel of John, um, and here we are in John chapter 5. We've been working our way slowly but surely through. I believe this is our 14th week in the gospel of John, um, so we're, we're still making our way through. Um, we're finishing up John chapter 5 today. So if you're in John chapter 5, begin in verse 31. Let's read this passage together, and we'll dive right in. If I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, that the testimony uh, that I receive is from man, that the, uh, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is another who accuses you, Moses. On whom, you have, uh, whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to come before this text, to see this passage. God, I pray that as we walk through this passage, we will see that we have a firm foundation on which we can set our faith. Lord, as we, as we look at these witnesses that Jesus brings forth, that we will uh, have a firm grounding of our faith um, that we can, we can have, Lord, and we can have more, more and more confidence in who you are. In your name, amen. So as we enter into the Christmas season, we reflect more on what we believe about Jesus. As we already have seen in the book of John, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is very clear. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on humanity so that he might die as a substitute for our sins, raising from the dead to conquer sin, Satan, and death itself. Through this, he brings salvation to all who put their trust in him. While the gospel itself has been laying on proof upon proof for the truth of these claims, we may still ask the question, how can we know for sure? Right? We might still have that question. How can we be certain? Is there a way that we can know for sure that Jesus is who he claims to be? That he is the Son of God, the risen Savior? We may answer that question by saying that we really can't know for sure, but we believe it by faith, even maybe blind faith. The skeptic then may see faith, uh, the, that faith, that type of faith, as a crutch as a way of avoiding the harsh reality that nothing in the Bible is ultimately true. If faith is blind, then what kind of certainty do we really have? Thankfully, Jesus didn't believe in blind faith. In our passage today, we will see that Jesus brings three witnesses that testify to his identity. As we look at these three witnesses, we'll see that faith is not blind but rather is grounded in firm, provable, historical reality. It's grounded in truth. At the outset, let me claim to you that what I've, what I've said to you before, I am more confident in the truth of who Jesus is. I am more confident in, in his death and resurrection. I am more confident in that than I am in my own existence. I more firmly believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he rose from the dead than I am that I am actually here standing in front of you right now. I'm more confident of that truth. As we look at these three witnesses, we will see there's three areas where we can have confidence that our faith is grounded, not in blindness, but in firm reality. We have extensive human testimony. We have authority of divine testimony and we have the verifiability of Scripture. Now, before we look at three witnesses, these three witnesses, let's take a step back and be reminded of the context where we sit. Let's be reminded of where Jesus is at at this point. If you remember, at the beginning of John 5, Jesus is, he, is just, he had just healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. The Jewish leaders at first were really upset at this guy who had been healed for carrying his bed around. Remember, they thought, like, how dare you carry your bed on the Sabbath day? And then they found out that, that somebody he'd healed him, which caused him to carry his bed. And then they, they were even more mad at whoever this guy was that healed him. And when they found out that it was Jesus, all of their anger and all of their frustration was directed right at Jesus. And they confronted him about that. And Jesus, when, he, when they said that, when, when um, 
When they confronted Jesus, he made a strong claim to his divinity by referring to God as his own father. If you remember that from a couple weeks ago. This statement angered these Jews, and Jesus can, but instead of backing off from, from them because they were angry, instead, Jesus continued to explain these aspects of the eternal divine relationship. That was what we looked at last week, that Jesus is, is explaining this relationship he has with the Father that really shows his equality with God. And, and, and it, it, gives, uh, it gives also, then, then we have here is Jesus is continuing uh, to bring forward witnesses to the claim of his truth, to this, this claim to his divinity. Right, Jesus, the, the people at the end of John chapter 5 and verse 18, they, they were angry at Jesus because he had claimed that he was God, that he claimed he was equal with God. Jesus didn't back down. He instead, he explained how that is absolutely true. And here he continues and says that is even more true because here's some witnesses to bear testimony to that fact. Verse 31 then begins, if I bear witness of myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Right? Um, so we must understand that what Jesus is not saying that he is false. He's not saying that what he is, what he is claiming is false. Right? What he is saying, he's already said in the preceding verses that I can do nothing on my own. Right? In verse, 30, in verse uh, 30, he said, I can do nothing of my own. So Jesus is not going to have self-testimony and that be the only testimony he brings forward. His own testimony would really be inadequate um, if, if, if that was all it was. So kind of to give, um, to kind of explain this, what, what he is saying is that if the burden of evidence to support these tremendous claims that he has been making exclusively depends on his own self-attestation, his witness must be false, right? So kind of give you an example. If I was to claim to be the pastor of this church, Right? If I said, I'm the pastor at First Baptist Church of Gordon, and there was no one who could verify that claim. Right? If I walked up here one day, stepped behind this pulpit, and said, I'm the pastor here. And everybody, oh, every one of you said, no, you're not. Right? They'd be, I, would have, I would not be true. There would be no way to prove me. There, to, I, could, I could have no proof that I'm correct. Um, so uh, it would be there'd be no way to verify that claim, and I would easily be found to be wrong, if not crazy, right? If not absolutely insane. Jesus claims to be the very eternal Son of God. Now, certainly there must be proof to his claim, or witnesses to his claim, or else he's just a crazy cult leader, right? So Jesus is saying, "I'm not a crazy cult leader. I have proof," and he brings forward this proof in the rest of this passage. So first, this first uh, witness we're going to look at is John the Baptist. Now, in verse 32, Jesus makes a reference to the Father as one of his witnesses. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more when we get to, when we get to the second point here. Uh, first off, we'll look at verse 33. It says, you sent to John. This is talking about John the Baptist. Now, remember in John chapter 1, there was a group of, of Jews that were sent to ask John who he was. And if you remember John's response was that he was the voice in the wilderness uh, that was, that was uh, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. John claimed that his ministry was simply to direct people to the Messiah. Right? So this, this is hearkening back to something that happened in John chapter 1. Uh, the next day, John pointed everyone to Jesus as the Messiah. That's the rest of John chapter 1. 
Now, in addition to John's testimony, right? We had this clear testimony from John. Jesus reminds them, you guys asked John about who, who he was. And he said that he's the guy pointing to the Messiah. And when Jesus showed up, what did he do? He pointed them to the Messiah and said, hey, that guy's the Messiah. Now, not only do we have John's testimony, but in this, in this same idea of we, this idea that we have an extensive human testimony, I want to take a moment to look at some other areas of human testimony that we have in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, if you want to turn there, uh, you can kind of follow where, where I'm going with some of these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, it gives us, it directs us to other important areas of human testimony to the truth of Jesus' identity. The Apostle Paul, which is the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians, uh, he was the enemy of Christians. If you remember uh, from back in, in the book of Acts, he was found persecuting Christians. His job was to round up Christians and have them executed. He was the enemy of Christianity before he became a Christian. He was the enemy of Christians. His job was to round them up. We read then in Acts chapter 9 how Jesus reveals himself to Paul and how Paul is radically saved. Right? This amazing miracle takes place and the very enemy of Christianity is brought to salvation. And here we have in 1 Corinthians 15 some, some uh, evidence that Paul brings forward to the claims of Christianity. Now, if there's anyone we, we would expect to be skeptical about the resurrection, it would be Paul. If anyone is going to kind of stick up their nose and say, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead, it's going to be this guy. Yet he spends an entire chapter of the Bible explaining why the resurrection is so central to Christianity. <clears throat> um, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches off the importance of the resurrection in proving the divinity of Christ. He even says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now in academic philosophy, an argument is actually stronger if it can be proven wrong. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if I told you that I was the king of Mars, okay, once again, Bizarre claim, right? If I told you I was the king of Mars and there was no way for you to confirm or deny that claim, right? You can't prove me wrong, so I must be the king of Mars, right? No, you would still be skeptical of the claim, even if, even if there was no way to prove me wrong. Um, now, however, if I was again to go back to the other illustration, if I was to say that I'm the pastor of the church, you can easily find out if I'm wrong. Right? You can go back and look at our church documents. You can ask people, is he the pastor? Is he not the pastor? Now, people are able to say, yes, we were there. I was there when we voted for him. The vote came out positive. He's been, he was, he was uh, uh, called to be our pastor. And the documents, the documents we have can confirm. Now, you could, you could find out. You can, you can find out that I'm not the pastor, right? You could. It's possible to find a way to disprove me. Which means that if you can't disprove me, my case is stronger. That makes sense. So, so when, what Paul is doing here, he is showing the strength of Christianity through the resurrection. He's saying, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, Christianity is absolutely false. Right? So Christianity can be proved wrong. If we can find the bones of Jesus and we can prove without a shadow of a doubt 
that those bones belong to the historical person named Jesus, then Christianity is wrong. But if we can't find the bones, that strengthens the argument for Christianity. Nobody found the bones. They don't exist. There's no body. So what must be true? What's the best explanation? Resurrection is the best explanation for the evidence. According to, uh, accordingly, according to Paul, um, if someone was to, uh, can, sorry, I lost my place here. In the case of Christianity, not only has no one found the bones of Jesus, but we have a record of witnesses, of eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. We know that Paul wrote, in first, wrote 1 Corinthians in the first century. So it's within the 30 or 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead is when 1 Corinthians is being written. When he was writing, there were still people alive who remembered seeing the resurrection, right? So when Paul writes this, he's saying, you can talk to these people. You can find out if these people are still, uh, if he, what, they, what they saw. Um, Paul directs his first readers to ask them to corroborate the evidence in verse 5. Um, in verse 5, he says that Jesus appeared to Peter, right? It may say Cephas in your text. That's the apostle Peter. He appeared to Peter. You could go and ask Peter. Did, he, did you see Jesus? Did, he, did you see him raised from the dead? And what's he going to say? Yes, I did. I, I saw that. And he says further, you can ask. Uh, in, in verse 7, he says that he appeared to James, Jesus' brother. In verse 8, he says that he even appeared to himself, to Paul himself. And in verse 6, he even says that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. More than 500 people. And he says, many of which are still alive. Some of them have passed on, but many of them are still alive. Um, this last one is significant because there is zero evidence in the history of the world. There is no evidence of mass hallucinations. Right? One of the favorite arguments against the resurrection is, well, maybe these people were hallucinating. Right? That's, that's how we can explain the resurrection. They were just hallucinating. There is no Evidence. You talk to any psychologist, there is zero evidence of any mass hallucinations of multiple people saying, seeing the same hallucination in the exact same way. There's no evidence of it. So the fact that Paul claims that there was 500 people who saw him at once and you can talk to them right now proves that there is no hallucination going on here. It disproves that argument. Um, these people could be visited and asked about what they saw. The argument for the truth of the resurrection is strong indeed. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then he must be who he said he was, the Son of God. So let's get back to John chapter 5. Um, so having brought in that area of human testimony as well, let's jump back to John chapter 5. And let's go, let's look at, look at, uh, look at how Jesus continues to flesh this out. Let's look back at John the Baptist then. Even though we have John the Baptist's testimony... And then would later, after the resurrection, have the testimony of more than 500 witnesses to the resurrection, which bear testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Look at his outlook. Look how Jesus responds to this. Look at verse 34. This is fascinating. He says, you have, you've sent to John in verse 33, and he's born witness to the truth. Verse 34. Not that, not, that the or not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, what he says is, is, I don't even need that testimony. 
You have John the Baptist's testimony. Later you'll have, you'll have these 500 witnesses. It's not there in the text, but he, he, what we would have later is these 500 witnesses. Jesus says, I don't even need that to prove who I am. See, that's, it's really ir- irrelevant to me proving who I am. I have a stronger witness, and that's what we'll get to in the next point here. He has a much stronger witness, a way greater, much greater witness than John the Baptist or any of these other te- witnesses. Right? Already we can say, well, with that kind of testimony, with that kind of human testimony, how could you deny this? And Jesus says, eh, I don't even need that. Right? Even if he didn't have those 500 people, he would not need those people to, to prove that he was the son of God. It's fascinating. He says, not that, he says, uh, uh, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. The only reason Jesus even mentions this, John the Baptist, is for the sake of his audience and for us. He brings up human testimony that we may be saved. That's it. The only purpose to even bring that up is not because he needs it to prove himself. It's to show us that we, it's to show us who he is, that we may be saved. Although Jesus did not need John's testimony, he speaks positively about him. Look in verse 35. Um, it says, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in that light. Although he didn't need his testimony, he does speak positively about him. In calling John a lamp, what he's doing here, he is contrasting him in the same way he did it, it was done in John chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, in John chapter 1, it said that it was talking about the word, and he is the light, right? That Jesus is the light. And then it says, talking about John the Baptist, it says he was not that light, but he came to bear witness about that light. Um, so further, he's, he's likely referencing Psalm chapter 132 and verse 17 that says that where, where God says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So in this passage here, in calling John a lamp and a, a calling John a shining lamp, he's, he's referring to this passage in Psalm 132 as well and saying this passage in Psalm 132 is talking about John the Baptist and who he is and what his, what his goal was is to be a lamp for the anointed. John the Baptist is the, is the lamp that God the Father sent to prepare the way for the coming of the anointed one, the Son of God, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And he says there about to, to the, these people, to his accusers in this passage, he says, uh, and you were real, willing to rejoice for a little while in that light. Right? John's testimony, as great as it was, was really fleeting. Right? His ministry was going to come to an end. At this point, John may have been in prison, if not already executed. Right? And the people, you were, he's telling them, you were willing to like, believe him and listen to him for a little while, but you know, what happened? You know, um, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have the light. All they were doing was depending on the lamp. They wouldn't, didn't even depend on the light. So secondly, we'll see, we'll see in this passage, we've already looked at we have the strength of human testimony. And next we'll see that we have the authority of divine testimony. Even though we already can claim to have a, a strong grounding for our faith with the human testimony of John the Baptist and of the, of the human witness to the resurrection, um, uh, um, look at verse 36 here. This, Jesus kind of switches gears here. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than, the, than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Um, Jesus has this divine testimony on his side. 
He has the testimony, the witness, the, the testimony from God the Father himself to the truth of these claims. This is why Jesus says he doesn't even need John the Baptist, right? He's got the Father on his side as well. Why does he need John the Baptist's testimony when he's got God the Father on his side, right? Um, and so let's, let's look back at verse 32 uh, because this, this, kinda, this is uh, also talking about the Father. In verse 32, it says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Um, how we know this is talking about God the Father and not John the Baptist, just real quickly. Um, the word that's used there for another is this phrase, uh, this word another. There's, there's two words for another in the, in the, in the Greek Bible. And, um, and this word means another of the same kind. Right? So it's another of a same kind as himself. So he's saying there is another witness. So when he's saying this, that there's another witness of the same kind, it's, uh, it's not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the same kind as Jesus. Right? So this is how we, can, how we understand that he's talking about the, about the Father as his witness. Further, we have, again, picking up in verse 36, how he says, I don't even need John the Baptist's testimony. Right? So in this part right here, he's talking about how, how there's someone who bears witness that he seems to be giving weight to, but he's already taken away the real, real heaviness of the weight of John the Baptist's testimony and, and directed that to God the Father so we can, we can, uh, we can uh, assume that he is, that's what he did in verse 32 is he brings up the Father, takes a sidetrack to, to John the Baptist and comes back to the Father. So that's just to kind of help you understand what's, what's going on, why I'm outlining it that particular way. So um, the works are not done, uh, Jesus says, his works are not done apart from the will of the Father. He had already said that in the previous passage, that nothing he does is apart from the work of the Father. Um, then again, back in verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So how do we know that the Father sent the Son, that, that Jesus was sent by the Father? How do we know that? Because we see what he does, and we see what he says. And the things that he does and says are the works and words of the Father. Right? So this is how Jesus is bringing forward that he has the Father as a witness. Now, works here is probably in view here is not a specific action in particular, but in general, all of the actions and words of Jesus. Um, Moving on to verse 37, uh, we have this. uh, It says this. It says, And the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. Um, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his words abiding in you, for you do not believe uh, the one whom he has sent. In saying that we've not heard or seen the Father, this is really interesting. And I, I want to give you guys a heads up as well. This is a, I really struggled with how to understand this passage. In fact, last night, uh, as Austin and Megan were getting tired and trying to fall asleep, I was bugging them for about an hour trying to talk through them my struggle with understanding and reading and how to preach this particular section of the passage. They can, they can attest. Uh, so let me try to share with you kind of where I'm at on this passage and how to understand this. Uh, and hopefully it'll shed some light on the, on the text and, and draw us to, uh, to love the text that much more. Um, in saying that we've not seen or heard the Father, nor does his word abide in them, he explains that this is true because they do not believe in him. Look at that in verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you for or because... 
You do not believe the one whom he has sent. So these, these, this triple indictment that Jesus gives, you haven't heard, uh, heard the Father, you haven't seen the Father, and his word doesn't abide in you. This triple indictment that Jesus gives on them is grounded in the fact that they don't believe in the one who was sent. They don't believe, namely, in Jesus himself. Um, John 1.18 says that no one has seen God the Father at any time. And that the only begotten God, i.e. the Son, has revealed him. So these Jewish accusers have not received anything from the Father because they have not received the one who reveals the Father. Right? When Jesus tells them, you haven't, you haven't heard him, you haven't seen him, his word doesn't abide in you. It's because they have not received the Son. They have not received the testimony of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they have rejected the Father and they haven't heard him or seen him or had any participation in that, in, in the, the life that Christ offers. As we will see in the, uh, later in the passage, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, Moses heard and saw and wrote about the Son of God and therefore heard and saw and knew the Father. I will see that in the end of the passage here. He says, Moses wrote about me. Right? So if, if Moses heard and had seen and had taught, was talking about and writing about the Son, then it stands to reason that Moses did know the Father because he knew the Son and accepted and believed in the Son. These guys rejected the Son, therefore they couldn't know the Father. The Old Testament, in, in, fact, in fact, here none of the patriarchs knew the Father apart from the Son revealing him to them. The Old Testament saints came to the Father through the Son of God. These accusers rejected the very God they claimed to worship. The triune God of their forefathers. Because they rejected the Son of God and his revelation of the Father. Jesus' scathing assessment of these accusers essentially told them that they are not true followers of Moses nor of their forefathers. Because they did, uh, and therefore they are not truly the people of God. Not in reality because they don't follow in the same belief. Verse 39, let's continue on here. Verse 39, he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Jesus is saying here that you've studied the Bible, you've made your lives into studying scripture, yet you've completely missed the point. You've completely overlooked it. You think that as you read scripture and study scripture, that that's where you're going to find life. But you don't even believe in me. And I'm the one the scriptures are, writing, scriptures are written about. Right? So you understand here what, what Jesus is basically telling them is it's, it is possible to study the scriptures and to completely miss it. I can prove it to you. There's a New Testament scholar at... Uh, at um, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, a New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a, a very, very well-known, very famous New Testament scholar. You can find his books at Barnes & Noble about the New Testament and about Jesus. Here's the issue, though. He's an agnostic. In other words, he's not sure if God exists or not. He has made his living studying and teaching the Bible, and he's not even sure if God exists. Doesn't that prove what Jesus says right here? You study the scriptures, but if you don't find me, you don't find life. Bar Ehrman is not a Christian. 
He is a student of Scripture, but he doesn't believe it. So how can he really understand Scripture in the first place? Right? So the same can be true of, of anybody who studies the Scriptures and does not find in them the words of life, does not find in them Christ. You don't understand the Scriptures. Continuing on here, verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This idea of glory here that he brings up, um, he's, uh, Jesus here is saying that uh, in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus isn't seeking glory for himself. Right? We saw last week, which is beautiful, that God's goal, right, the Father's goal, is that his Son may be glorified. And you'd think then, I mean, what, of anybody in the entire world who would desire glory from people, wouldn't it be Jesus who's the only one who truly deserves that glory in the first place? Yet here Jesus shows his incredible humility and says, I don't need, your, I don't need glory from you guys. I'm not here to get your praise. I'm not here to get your your honor, right? He's here to do what the Father has told him to do. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Um, And uh, uh, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This also harkens into this idea there's, there's false messiahs. This time in the first century, there were numbers of people who claim to be the Messiah, right? They were claiming, I'm the one who's, who, who's the one that's going to bring salvation. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And people would, would flock to these people, right? They'd be, oh yeah, we want to hear from that guy. We want to hear from that guy. We want to hear from that guy. Now again, Jesus explains exactly why they're drawn to these false messiahs. He says, he said, again, he said, I'm not seeking glory from people, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I come in my father's own name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God. Why did they flock to these people? Why did they want to talk to these other people who claim to be the Messiah? Because those people were, they were scratching their back and they were getting their back scratched by them. They were, they were you know, if, if they, they probably would have liked Jesus more if he was more willing to say, hey, you guys are all great, you know? Every one of you are just amazing, right? Everything you're doing, oh, you're not doing anything wrong. Oh, you didn't really sin right there. That was no big deal. And he was all great, right? If Jesus had done that, why would anybody be upset with him, right? And then they say, oh, well, you know, you're claiming to be God. He said, oh, well, you know, no. If, if that's what you heard and that makes you mad, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant by that, right? If Jesus was seeking the praise of man, he would constantly be seeking their approval and trying to point, instead of, instead of directing them to truth, he'd be tickling their ears. And here Jesus is saying, this is why you're directed toward false messiahs. He says, you would rather receive glory from other people rather than receive, glory, receive the glory of God. You'd rather get the glory from somewhere else besides from the Lord. As we see in verse, 30, in verse 33, to not love the Son, or as we saw in verse 23, uh, to not love the Son is to not love the Father. So these people in their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah showed that they were against the Father. 
Verse 44 again, they refused to believe because they were dependent on accepting praise from one another. They made no effort to obtain praise that comes from God. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Through everything we see Jesus say and do, we are given evidence from God the Father to the authority and identity of the Son of God. Rejecting Jesus is completely foolish. If you have believed in Jesus, we also see that the the true followers of Christ should should seek Scripture to find what God says, not to affirm what we already believe. Further, we also see that selfishly seeking our own glory blinds us to the truth of God's word. Our third thing here, we've seen that we have, uh, we can have our, our, our faith can be grounded in, in a strong human testimony, in this, this vast array of human testimony. Secondly, we've seen that we have this strong authoritative testimony from God the Father. And third today, we have the verifiability of Scripture. This is our final point today in our last couple verses. This is um, verse 45, Jesus begins this out. Our final witness that Jesus brings forward is Moses. Jesus says, do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? Again, remember, he's already brought up that the Father stands in direct contrast to his accusers, right? So they could think, oh, well, Jesus, why don't you just tell the Father on me? Why don't you just accuse us to the Father and let him deal with it? And Jesus, I don't even need to do that. Do you think I'm going to accuse you to my father? Look at this. He says, do you think that I'm going to accuse you to my father, to the father? There is one who already accuses you, Moses, um, on whom you have set your hope. And they, they, they love Moses, right? These guys love Moses. This is the, the, he's the one who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of their scriptures, all of their laws, all of their rules, all of their regulations, all of these things that they loved so much were written by Moses. And they, so they loved Moses. They, they believed that they followed Moses. They wanted to be like Moses. That he, was, he was their leader, right? And he says, you have Moses? He said, I, he said, I don't even need to accuse you to the Father because Moses already accuses you. He says, he says, um, Moses, on whom you have set, you, set your hope. Verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. What Jesus tells them is you do not necessarily just have a problem with your heart, which you certainly do. But more than anything, you have a problem with the way you come to Scripture. You have a problem with your reading of Scripture. Your hermeneutic, or the way you read Scripture, is totally misguided. It's totally misunderstood. <clears throat> There's, there's no need for Jesus to accuse them um, uh, here. Uh, so whether, speaking, uh, whether this is speaking to a particular passage in Moses' writing or to the whole of the first five books of the Bible is uncertain. Now, I would argue that both, both this general idea and this specific idea are in, are in view. Earlier, we read, a, we read a passage from Deuteronomy 18. There's a clear it is a clear prophecy about Christ, about the prophet who will, uh, who will uh, the prophet like Moses, who will come and speak the words of God. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Further, within within Moses' writings, Jesus is the beginning through whom God created the heaven and earth in Genesis one one. He is the image of God through which the Father created mankind in Genesis one twenty six. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. He's the greater Judah with an eternal throne in Genesis 49. 
He is the Passover lamb, the tabernacle, the great high priest, the greater high priest, the greater Moses, the greater Abraham, the fulfiller of the law. All that Moses wrote was directed, was directing his readers to worship and adore the Son of God, to worship Christ. That's what Moses was writing about. The whole of Genesis to Deuteronomy has one goal, worship Jesus. But the way that they read the text drove them instead to worship a law, to worship rules, to worship regulations, to worship a view of God that is not the view of God that, had, that Moses had in mind. Their, 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 their way that they came to Scripture pointed them away from Jesus and to themselves, ultimately. And so they misunderstood. They, they couldn't understand Jesus' message because they couldn't understand the Scriptures correctly. In Deuteronomy 18, we also see that a prophet is false if the things he says do not come true, which Todd read for us earlier. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament were, were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, right? Many of these prophecies that are even written in Scripture by these prophets, they're fulfilled the minute Jesus comes to earth. <clears throat> so Jesus actually provides verification of the truth of the Old Testament by showing up. Jesus provides verification for these prophets, um, as well, the Old Testament then also reciprocates and bears witness to him. How can we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, we can see that these prophecies are directly correlating to the things that Jesus is saying and doing. Therefore, the prophecies show us Christ and show us that Jesus is who he says he is, just as Jesus is, is actually becomes the verification of these prophecies themselves. So that, there's that complete interconnectedness there. Um, the Old Testament did not agree with Jesus about his claims. Jesus could easily be proven to be a false prophet and a false messiah. Right? If the scriptures said, for example, that the, son of, that, the, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and Jesus was not born of a virgin, Jesus is not the Messiah. We know that Jesus is the Messiah because Isaiah 7.14 claims that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. So when that happens, you know to look for the guy. That's the guy. That's the Messiah. Right? We could, go, we could spend all day trekking through the Old Testament on how, we can, how, we're, how this Old Testament shows us who Christ is and shows that the minute Jesus fulfills those prophecies, it confirms that Jesus is who he said he is. The ultimate conflict then we see between the Jewish leaders and Jesus is, the con is this conflict of hermeneutics. For the Jewish leaders, all of scripture was fo about following the rules and regulations in the law. God could not be Trinity because in their mind there was only one God and that was to the exclusion of anything else. However, Jesus claimed and proved that all of scripture was about him because all of scripture revealed him. Scripture then must be read through a Trinitarian lens. So there is only one God. That one God is Trinitarian. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is basically saying, unless you read the Scripture through the lens of the Trinity, you can't see it. You can't see Scripture for what it's meant to be. Jesus is not being racist against these Jews, but rather he is saying that the, there's a, the Jewish misunderstanding of Scripture um, was the center of Jesus' main concern here. 
So here's our conclusion today. We have seen three witnesses which increase the veracity or the truth to the claims of our beliefs about Jesus. We do not have to rely on blind faith. No, our faith or our belief or our trust in G- is, in Jesus Christ, is in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as our Savior that is firmly gr- grounded in verifiable evidence. Evidence from John the Baptist and other human testimony, evidence that comes from the Father, and evidence that comes from Scripture. So today, if you are not a believer, if you're, if you're here today and you're, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, Here's the proof. Here's the proof. This isn't blind faith. We're not sitting here saying, oh, we just, we believe it because we want to or because we feel it so much. No, there's, there's reality. There is grounded reality to what we're saying and what we're teaching. If you're here today and you're not a believer, would you accept Christ? Would you believe in him and trust in him as the savior that he is? Would you believe that he is the son of God? that he died to save you from your sins and to give you true life. Will you believe in him today? In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. I would love to meet with, meet with you either, either here or after the service and talk to you about how you can know for certain that you have a relationship with Jesus, how you can know for certain that, that, you, uh, that you, uh, you have that relationship. Now, for our church, we've looked at this, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. We've been looking at this for a long time now. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe this? Do our actions really show that we have a certain hope, a certain salvation? How do we share Christ with others? How well do we do that? Do we serve our community? Do we take the scriptures and the gospel seriously in the ways that we think and act? And what we, is what we do as a church guided completely by scripture? Or are there areas where we have fallen prey to cultural norms or to lazy thinking? If Jesus rose from the dead, he is the Son of God, as witnessed by John the Baptist, by God the Father, and by the Scriptures. If Jesus is the Son of God, we as a church and as individuals will be held accountable for the way that we function as a church. What are some ways that we need to repent, maybe? What are some ways that we maybe need to, uh, need to change the way that we behave, the way we function as a church? Let me pray for us and as we move into our time of invitation. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to seek your word, to, to look through your word. Lord, thank you for this glorious truth that we don't have to rely on, on mere blind faith. The Lord, you've given us testimony. You've given us witness. You've borne truth to us that we can know for certain that you are who you say you are, that you are the son of God. And Lord, if that is true, if that is a certainty that causes us to worship and that worship changes our actions. Lord, I pray that we would, we would respond now as you've called us to in your name. Amen.